Hello, heroes, and welcome to another exciting episode of One Shot. I'm James D'Amato, your host and game master. This week, we are concluding our run of A Green Hour. For those of you who have grown attached to Gion over this series, don't fret, because Gion is going to be back with us next week on our new series, because they are prepping for a new Kickstarter, The Shape of Shadows. If you want to learn more about that, you can sign up for the preview over in our show notes. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's get to the show. He has to touch the tan lines because he's expecting to be able to feel them and he can't. And that fascinates him. But like another thing on the parts of Valerian's body that are not tan, he is seeing that paler skin that he is more familiar with. And he is seeing this pale skin, like not in a uniform way, like, it, it's in shapes. It's in like clothing shapes. He's just fascinated by it. But like it is also definitely an intimate experience for him in the sense of you have just revealed flesh that is a culturally celebrated beauty standard type of flesh for him. Yeah. So he he's like just almost hypnotized. And also, you know, even being a scion, like he is a young man. So he is just like completely entranced by this sight because I don't know how they culturally would, would treat the scions in terms of sexual intimacy. But if there was sexual intimacy in others past, it's certainly not the type of sexual intimacy where you see your partner. So it's just an overwhelming experience and probably through a little bit of this, like as he's running his hands over the tan lines and whatnot, trying to feel them, he's also closing his eyes because it's so much. This whole experience is just a lot. Yeah. I think in Valerian's temple, like virginity is not prized even for the scion. It's not really a factor because the godhood, it doesn't matter whether you've been intimate with someone before. It's about, the fact that you were chosen as the scion. And so like natural attraction that happens right. in like late adolescence and, and into adulthood, it's not a big deal, but you can't be intimate once you've gone inside because it's inconsiderate. You would be rude to, it's a communal space. There's no real uh-huh, boundaries or yeah. barriers. Like even the, the doors to the greenhouse, the greenhouse is the only, the seedling house is the only place that closes. And that's a sacred space to, like have sex there would be so it would be a desecration of the temple and so if you're gonna be intimate with someone it has to be outside during the day and so that makes so much sense and so being in in now a very getting darker and darker cave because now at this point i imagine it's just solidly twilight because the sun when the sun starts setting it sets really fast and so Valerian is seeing, minutes, yeah. yeah, yeah, and Valerian's seeing the glow of other skin, and she's seeing that strange dimensional quality where the light of the bioluminescence on his skin sort of looks almost as though it's floating above his actual body, and she realizes that in spite of his delicacy, in order to withstand tides like you ha- and currents, like you have to build up some muscle. You have to be strong. He does massages. Yeah, constantly swimming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he has a, a very athletic musculature that just doesn't 
translate in, in body language until you're close. At the temple of the verdant God, strength and ability is prized, but what that looks like can be really different. So even people who maybe have uh, mobility challenges or, or can't walk, they can still can still like sort seeds, they can tend plants within the seedling house. People don't have to be lean to be strong. There's a wide diversity of body types, but the presence of strength, whatever that means, is like the highest value of both function and beauty in that temple. And mm. so that's why like fallow and dormant and delicate, it's not like an outright pejorative, but it is just sort of like, they are not beautiful to us. And suddenly yeah. Valerian is seeing, oh, I thought other was, I think she had this weird idea that even she knew was irrational that like when she touched other, it would be like, like an alfalfa sprout or something. Like she would have to be so careful not to yeah. bruise him. But now when she feels his hands on her, she can tell that he's, really strong and that's this like electric shock of attraction that just you know before she was mostly feeling this tenderness that honestly almost verged on pity and suddenly yeah, realized course. yeah yeah and suddenly feeling like oh I was wrong and I was wrong in a way that is really really compelling and I think that she also flushes you can't see it because it's getting as dark, but you can feel it on her skin that it just suddenly got warmer. Oh, yeah. And he's got to be very sensitive to, like, temperature changes in, in, yeah. in skin and whatnot. And the thing, like, we, we talked about him being strong and, and perhaps having, like, features of, of somebody who swims a lot, like a swimmer's body. But, like, the other thing He's got the hands of a masseuse, you know, he's, yeah. his fingers are so strong and they are strong in a way that really can touch muscle in a way that sinks into it. I think for part of this, getting excited and, and getting close, being in this intimate situation, he like touches Valerian's arm to draw her close to him and you can feel that strength in the firmness of that touch. We were talk talking a little bit about like sexual taboos and, and uh, you know, cultural practices people would have in these cultures surrounding intimacy. I think intimacy sort of has, and again, it's like an opposite end of the spectrum in this culture in that you probably have to go to a private pool or seclude yourself like somewhere within the temple that is removed from other people. And I think one of the big things about sexually intimate moments, especially ones that occur inside the temple, is you really have to be quiet about it. Mm. It's all about controlled breath and closeness. You're trying not to disturb and swirl the water too much. There's no splashing. So there's like this kind of dynamic tension to the way he's moving in all of this. He draws you close and his fingers move over Valerian's body. And I think he's also reacting to, if there's that instant burst of attraction in, in realizing that he possesses this strength inside this otherwise seemingly delicate form, he's going to notice 
the ways your body reacts to that. And like, he's then finally seeing a signal that in both of your cultures is seen as like a form of nonverbal invitation in that like, oh, this person is enjoying this touch and we are on the same wavelength a little bit here. So there's like kind of a sigh of relief, but it is a controlled <laughs> sigh of relief because he's trying not to make too much noise. Yeah, I think, you know, in order to be intimate and still have privacy, because it's probably not totally acceptable to be intimate in spaces where like visible space is shared at the Verdant Temple. Like it is still a private thing. Not everyone wants to see it. And so like in order to find the time and space, either you have to negotiate, hey, can we have this garden to ourselves for like however much time? Or you have to literally hike somewhere that is not part of the garden. And it becomes like a whole day trip. And there's just so much negotiation that goes on. Like the fact that this is happening organically on its own without any consultation or planning around communal shared space is so thrilling to Valerian. It's just- (laughs) There's no bureaucracy to this. There's no house meeting about it. There's no, you know, we need that garden bed because we have to get the grass plugs in, but you can have this other one that's going to be really, really hot at noon, but it's the only one that's private. You know, it's just happening. Oh my God. I just realized that people mostly hook up in fallow fields in that culture, which rules and makes so much sense. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's so good. And, and you know, the way that I imagine it is it's not European style agriculture. I think that it's like tended forests, but also tended like grassland savannas. There's wildlife walking around, there are birds. And so it's not always comfortable either like you are if Mm. if you luck upon if you're if the temple is currently in a forest like in the autumn when there's like a thick layer of leaf duff on the ground and somehow you manage to find a clearing where the trees aren't being pruned or checked for blight then yeah maybe it'll be comfortable but it's never a guarantee and I think that when other finally removes the last button from Valyrian's outer robe it doesn't really fold and drape on the floor the way fabric would, right? It's almost like a like a turf, like a mat of, of plants, right? And you can see the the underlayer of that matted kind of like seedling. You know, when 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 a plant gets like the roots get too big for the pot and it's just like all crowded together, that robe just slides to the the ground of the cave floor and it becomes a natural bed for them to lie on. It's pretty large and it's soft and it's cushioned and it slides kind of like to the side of them. And I think Mm -hmm. that maybe they both look at it expectantly or nervously. I think, okay. Okay. There is a type of behavior or a type of energy I think that exists in young people who are having sex for the first time if you are a very romantically minded sort of person, there's a nervous energy of like, I do want to get to doing this thing, but I have this imagined vision of how it's supposed to go. (laughs) And like, there's almost like kind of a nervous nest making quality to it. Like I, I, I am picturing now, this is a person who, oh, I really wanted to do this when a particular song was playing or, mm-hmm. oh, I definitely want candles set up beforehand. So like there is a moment looking at that 
and you know making eye contact with valerian like there is a thing that even not being from a culture that knows about what this garment is and does it is un, an unmistakable gesture of what has just happened there and he's so into the moment and then realizes oh crap i'm still wearing all my clothes so <laughs> he has to like he like puts up hands in a gesture of like oh wait one moment and and he gets up and he's like there's kind of like this hopping energy he's still got like a fluidity to his movements but but you know you know that excited little like naked hop people do when they're very quickly trying to grab something from across the room and bring it back <laughs> like it's exactly that thing and he goes across this area to this vessel that looks a little bit like a teapot and he pours out into a smaller vessel a bit of a draw of like this sweet smelling water and then he'll bring both of them back and like next to where that garment has laid and making careful eye contact and i think like touching valerian's thigh he'll take the smaller vessel that's like a little bit of a teacup but it's got the spout coming out of it and it is one of those i I don't know if you have seen this video or, or done any googling there is this rating system that exists for teapots and the, part, <laughs> the one that i know about is like a, a chinese rating system that goes from like bad is a literal rating that it could have to like su- all the way to superior or something like that <laughs> superior teapots are spouted in a way that the water flows out extremely evenly in, in like this oh. nice and delicate stream. And so it is this very delicate and even stream that comes out of this little cup that does not splash that other pours across his like shoulders and his clavicle especially catches it. And this body paint that's on him, when that warm water touches it, it illuminates in this glow that flows down his body a little bit and exposes his very pale skin underneath. He does that and then he offers the larger vessel to you in a way that's just very much like, you can undress me now. That is the gesture. I think that gesture is is understood. I think Valerian's had sex before. I don't think that she's like new completely to it. Mm-hmm. So when she sees that signal, she's like, oh, oh yeah, sure. And without really thinking about it in the very quick and practical way that sometimes people take off like a shirt with one hand, she just removes her shift. Um, <laughs> oh man. And she does it sort of without thinking about it and, and seeing whatever reaction other has, that's what makes her suddenly realize, oh, that was maybe a lot more provocative than I thought it was supposed to be. I mean, the thing, the word that is in others' mind for this is bright. Like, if somebody in the temple drops a cup or a rock or something, that is literally the loudest sound that you can ever expect to hear. People don't yell or or shout. Maybe sometimes someone will sneeze 
And that is like a very shocking surprise. <laughs> but everything else is very restrained. And that, I think, trickles down to movements. So I imagine taking this shift off, they would probably possess the strength to tear the shift. And although I don't think Valerian did, the way, like the fluidity and strength with which it was removed it, it's like in uh, others' mind, it's like, oh my God, they just destroyed that that <laughs> object. <laughs> this is the brightest thing I've ever seen or experienced. This person is the sun. Oh. I think that's just, he'll say that and he's got his big bright eyes that are being emphasized by the bioluminescence beneath him. And he looks at Valerian and says, you're the sun. You know, there's always that moment where you're waiting to see who's going to initiate the kiss. And I think after just the, the smallest beat, Valyrian is the one who reaches out to cup others' face in her hands and draw him in for a kiss. And I think the moment they kiss, the mat of her robe suddenly starts to grow. And it's almost like a time-lapse video. Like You can actually hear the plants growing. You can hear the leaves coming out and the stalks becoming thicker. And maybe, I don't know what the sea god equivalent of it would be, but this is definitely now the presence of impending godhood is in the cave with them. Yeah. Um, the moment they kiss. That That's it. And I think he can feel the, the energy of that godhood like approaching. I think one of his major anxieties that he's just felt throughout life is, am I even doing this right? I'm just going off instinct. And people have told me that my instincts are supposed to be right. But now in this moment, he understands the significance of his instincts more than he ever has before. He feeling her godhood will place a hand on, on her chest, like between her breasts, push her back just a little bit. And he just feels that power radiating off them as he watches between his fingers, these sprouts just start to grow and blossom. And once again, he'll like sort of bashfully offer up the vessel of water for her to disrobe him. And the way this would have to work is you're essentially just pouring it over the, the body paint that he has, gently showering it off. And it creates like melting off of his body with more liquid than the vessel could have ever possibly held. Yeah. This pool pours out of this vessel and the paint on his skin creates the bioluminescence in the pool. So like there is just this gorgeous rainbow melting off of his body as the sea god arrives. <sighs> I love it. I, I imagine that water just continuing to pour out from the vessel and that the all of the plants in Valyrian's robe are actually cradling them in this bower. And it would be, they would be completely shrouded in darkness except for the bioluminescence inside. And so improbably, right, they can see the water rising up above them. And yet yeah. it's not touching them. It's almost like they are in an air bubble 
underwater. And so through that, they can see this impossible mix of both plants that grow on the land, along with like the small marine life that you see that carry bioluminescence. And they're all just kind of waving and dancing together as though there is a current in the cave around them. And I think we can draw the veil there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is time for us to roll. Yeah. So we're supposed to roll 2d6 twice. We add the higher results to our honorable stat for the first results. And for the second roll, add the higher result to your impious stat. Yeah. And obviously if it maxes out at six, you just get six. Okay. All right. So I actually rolled a little badly. I, oh. <laughs> so my my honorable is at six. My impious is only at four. I rolled for my honorable, I got six. And for my impious, I got, well, I guess it's might also be six. A, a question here is I rolled a two. That was my mm-hmm. highest on the dishonorable roll. If yeah. you can't, you can't exceed six adding to your stat because I rolled the six on the first one. Yeah, I think not. And again, I have a different, I have like the the early edit revisions draft of the game. My anthology is in a pile somewhere. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> if the phrasing in it is confusing, no, so the phrasing clarify. isn't confusing here. I'll just read it aloud for, for yeah, our benefit for sure. and the audiences. At the end of each part, you will each roll 2d6 twice. For the first roll, add the higher result to your honorable stat. For the second roll, add the higher result to your impious stat. I do think the addition allows it to exceed six because it do, it's the next paragraph says, if your score exceeds eight for honorable, you are granted a boon. Got it, got it. Okay, in that case, let me look at my two dice. So I got snake eyes on impious. That's just four. <laughs> I got a one and a two on impious. Uh, I do yeah. believe the fates have conspired to make this not an impious game, which mm-hmm. actually makes total sense with the things that we have described. I feel like the tone, like we actually were, it, like both these characters are very in harmony with each other. Like that makes sense. There isn't like the, there is a lot of possibility for more dramatic tension there, but it didn't happen really in this game in that way. Which I, I think is cool because this yeah. reflects like the things that we were impious about kind of represent the compromise of the new world that we're about to create. So it's like weirdly yeah. perfect. Yeah, I like that that creates versatility of play. Like you could do a game where you pre-negotiate like our characters are actually kind of at odds with each other. Maybe one of them is very duty bound and the other is very rebellious. Like you don't know, but in this game, it's a very straightforward play, which actually I think is a great illustration of like the way that it works. Every two players are going to do it very differently, you know? So it's cool to see that that versatility I was hoping for is actually there. Anyway, I got an eight for honorable and a four for impious. So yeah, I I got a nine for honorable. (laughs) Uh, uh, So yeah, we get two boons. Yep. Awesome. So carrying that into part two, let's see. So what does it look like if you receive either? So if we both have a boon. If your score exceeds eight for honorable, you are granted a boon and something unexpected and beautiful will spring forth as the child of your union and the land will heal. Together, describe your boon, the aspects of both of you that it embodies and how it is essential to the new way of things. Ooh, okay, cool. So because I only got eight, we actually only get the one boon from your nine. Is that right? No, I mean, if your score, oh, wait, it does say if it exceeds eight. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, so, so we have one. That's still cool, because then we get to play it out 
uh, for the audience. Yeah. Do we want to do that now? Because we roll again at the end of part two, right? I think based on the phrasing of the final version um, that's in the anthology, Mm -hmm. that boon does come after part one. I think like you play it out every time. So that like, if you decided on a denial, then like there would be like stages of disaster. If you decide on boons or if you roll for boons and you get them, then like there's different stages of fruition and a blessing. Okay. Gosh, something new and beautiful that comes out of this union. I'm trying to, we're in this weird sort of space where the cultural taboos that both of us have kept are things that we've also really discarded in each other's presence. And I'm trying to think of how that we can reflect that harmony now here. I kind of think the tidal pools that exist, like that was one of the hopes that we had for this is that we would have something to replace the beauty of the reefs that used to exist in these dying oceans. And I kind of think there are vents that will open up on the earth that will not only radiate heat, but they will radiate light as well. So we can have this sort of undersea growth and whatnot, but there will be creatures that are able to photosynthesize out of the light that comes from these vents. So these gorgeous and vibrant reefs will be able to pop up all over the world. And, you know, we'll just say through godly magics and whatnot, they're able to populate very quickly and and Mm. grow very quickly. So there's just this massive spike in biodiversity and potential life-giving energy that just pours into the oceans of this world And those are able to pop up along the beaches. So those will in turn serve all of the animals that are able to live along the coastlines, as well as like enable completely new forms of life to like emerge. I have a visual for it. I feel like right at dawn, like right as the sun crests over the horizon from the mouth of this ritual bower, a waterfall that is just impossible, right? Just this bioluminescent mm-hmm. waterfall cascades out of it. And where that water hits the sea, suddenly life starts teeming out from it. Like the color of the water oh, changes. Yeah. And be, from behind the water, you can also see all of these plants growing, like vines, like vining plants that all like creep up onto the the surface of the cave, like the, or the cliff back onto the land. And again, like the quality of the, of the greenness of the land changes too. It becomes more rich and varied. It's not just the same 12 to 20 species. Suddenly there's just like this dense variety in the, in the land that creeps out from the plants that are growing from the mouth of this cave. And now we get to go to part two and describe what God emerges from that power. Yeah. We're going off of the text in the book, part two. Your scions now metamorphosize into their new united form as a land god. The ritual has four parts named after the seasons, and for each will answer the prompts. So here's a a, a thing, Gian, that, that I kind of wanted reading these prompts. I almost want us to answer these prompts 
and before we reveal them to each other. Oh, like write them down and then, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, describe them. Yeah. I like Let's that. I'm going to pull up my little notepad here. The prompt for autumn is what parts of your humanity die? For winter is what parts of your humanity do you carry into your new existence? Cool. For spring, it is what does your new body look like and what can it do? In summer, it's what parts of the land do you reign over and how does it celebrate your rebirth? So, Okay, let's, let's take a minute to answer these questions. <laughs> yeah. This is a cool idea. I like this. I like the, the surprise element. That's very cool. Hey Heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and welcome to the mid-roll. Heroes, this series focused around a green hour, a game pulled from the Ultimate Micro RPG book, which is about to be my second to most recent book, as the Ultimate RPG Game Master's World Building Guide is coming out May 25th. For those who haven't heard, the World Building Guide is full of activities and prompts to help you develop a setting for role-playing games. It's aimed at Game Masters, but there's fun stuff for everyone between those pages. There's advice on developing settings for specific RPG genres, exercises for developing settings, and mini-games to play to help make building settings easy and fun for you and your friends. It also includes a foreword from my dear friend Patrick Rothfuss, and I am so proud of this book, and I hope everyone has fun with it. If you're interested in checking it out, you can head to bit.ly slash ultimateworldbuilding. There you can find ways to pick it up from every major online retailer, as well as all of the major brick-and-mortar bookstores. But if you head out to your favorite indie brick-and-mortar, they should also easily be able to order it. And while you're checking that out, be sure to check out some of the other books in the Ultimate RPG series, including the Ultimate Micro RPG book, which includes 40 different micro games. And the game that you're listening to right now is one of those games, so you know it's good. Just look for any Ultimate RPG book published by Adams Media, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. As always, a huge thank you to everyone who supports the One Shot Network through our Patreon. Without you, we wouldn't be able to produce shows like this. Coming up this month, we've got a litany of delightful treats in our Patreon on bonus content. Part of that is a character creation session between me and Jian Shim for their upcoming Connected Path RPG, The Shape of Shadows, and some surprise stuff coming from the world of Campaign Skyjacks and Skyjacks Courier's Call. The only way to get at it is by subscribing to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash one-shot podcast. A huge thank you to everyone who supports us already and everyone who's going to support us in the future. Now, with all of that out of the way, Let's get back to the show. I'm excited. So what did you say for autumn? For autumn, what parts of my humanity die? I think it's doubt for my character. <laughs> The solitary sort of like feeling of the culture and also being the scion and having like extra expectations and whatnot and really only having intimacy in certain spaces 
I think a general and social anxiety is like a very natural part of this person's life and is the thing more than anything else that has caused them like stress and unpleasantness. I think in that moment when he saw Valerian reveal her godhood and felt the instinct to reveal his as well, all of that melted away because the world finally made sense in a way that you're always told it will make sense when you're older. Like it actually did. (laughs) And that is just a burden that he carried when he's human that now is no longer relevant as the new God. Yeah. I love that you said doubt because I said resentment. I think that Valyrian was someone who really resented her lack you know, in some ways, her lack of agency. On the one hand, she has a lot of say and autonomy, but she doesn't have a lot of agency. There is a, a pre-written path of her life, and she really resented the choice to rest, the choice to, to be less responsible that some people could exercise, and she just didn't get to. But in the consummation of the wedding and and, like, actually finding the beauty in it i think that just melted away when they when they became a new god yeah that's i love that it's doubt and resentment oh what a happy what a happy uh happenstance what did you say for winter what uh humanity did you retain yeah the humanity that i retained is the instinct to nurture for sure it is the feeling of noticing if someone is hurt and that instinct to help them if they are. That's so cool. I said nurturance and fondness. That sense oh, of... Oh, no, yes. Yeah, that sense of, of caring for something and in caring for it, becoming very fond of it. I think that that is something that lives in this new God that they've become. I love this God has the instinct, the very human instinct to care for things. And yeah. when it cares for things, it grows to like them. That's <laughs> very good. And I like that a lot. I like it. Yeah. It's like Valyrian's fondness when she handled the seedlings that got carried over. And now the whole world is the seedling to this God and they love it. I'm curious, Gian, what, what is your spring that you came up with? Uh, which, which is to remind the audience It says, what does your body look like and what can it do? So I said, huge. (laughs) It's like all caps and underlined. I imagine like this God sort of quietly walks the earth and it doesn't like where its foot falls. It doesn't destroy like greenery springs up in every tread. And its body, though, is like a Leviathan. It's almost like a living aquarium. As they walk the earth, you can see that it's it's like a, a huge being made up of water and the water is held in by these beautiful verdant plants. I said in mine, which matches up perfectly with yours, this God's body has transparent skin that like you can see through and into it and inside there is like all of this bioluminescence and just green life teeming inside. But specifically, the thing that it can do with some of that is maybe every year or just every once in a while, there are these fertile eggs that kind of like germinate into things that appear to almost be jewels on the body. And they can be planted into the earth and 
if they're planted into the earth and nurtured, what will spring forth from that is like beautiful new life. It is essentially like a jeweled egg that creates brand new species and, and types of life. Yeah, when you said egg, I imagined fish eggs, actually, like roe, like that perfect sphere yeah. with the with the translucent skin, but you can see inside the the place where life is going to form out of. It's oh yeah, I love that. I love it. That's so good. Uh what did you say for summer? For summer, our question was what parts of the land do you reign over? And how does it celebrate your rebirth? I kind of think like the thing that is very apparent uh, about the the marriage of these two cultures and whatnot is it's got to be a volcanic islands that that pop up very quickly. I imagine what happens like there's a lot of this old earth. We talk about blight. We talk about life dying in other places. I kind of think like the blighted parts of the world that can't support life sort of drop into the sea and these volcanoes emerge. They just sort of rumble up, erupt out of the ground, creating this new earth. And then shooting from within that, there are these geysers that spray up that are full and fertile with life. So they just shoot up these tremendous steam clouds that then rain down and where that rain drops down, new plants start to grow and new moss and lichens, like breaking that obsidian down into soil and dirt and sand, you know, almost instantaneously, very, very quickly, just these fertile geysers popping up. I love that because what I said for for summer were riparian tidal zones. So riparian zones are where the land meets a body of water. Inland, right, it's going to be the land around a river or a lake. But as you go toward the coast, like often there are riparian zones that form right by the sea. And that makes a lot of sense that there's suddenly a, a bunch of islands everywhere. And then the second part I said was yeah. teeming with life. There's just such an abundance of life everywhere. So that's perfect. That is so cool yeah. how our answers aligned with no consultation of each other. That's very cool. That's that's why I kind of wanted to do the reveal <laughs> is like so much of the things that we were saying were very coincidentally lining up. I'm just like, oh, we've got a thematic flow and connection here. Mm -hmm. Let's 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 do a little bit of the prestige and, and see how well it's working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, I'm thrilled by that. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, roll to see the boons or denials. For the first one, I get a seven. And the second one, I get an eight. So I don't get either a boon or a denial from that. I'm just normal. Okay. I got a nine for the first roll. So there's one boon and then a two for impious. So no, uh, no denial. This is just an auspicious, auspicious round of this game. So yeah, we get to decide on a boon. And in this case, I feel like, you know, all the abundance has happened and this is very interpretive and I am absolutely happy to mm -hmm. amend or not do it. But what if in addition to all of the life of godhood that was sort of 
hoped for and anticipated, right? Like new species, this guy's riparian zones, like teeming with life, all the, the habitable land on the planet can now support life when that wasn't true before. And that was expe- actually like this dramatic stuff was in some ways expected. But what if in the cave, when the, the temple guardians from both temples, the sea god's temple and the verdant god's temple go down to the cave, what if they find a child? What if they find a human infant that's like in a in a little oh. cradle? And that like is a total surprise. That's cool because we did kind of imply that maybe our characters hooked up before they embraced their godhood. So that makes sense that like <laughs> that would be there. I kind yeah. of love that. Yeah, it's like a it's like the boon is the manifestation of the fact that on first meeting, these two people were were really attracted to each other and that this was like a very joyful union, actually, in spite of all the baggage. And so now there's like a child. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of like also reflects that humanity does have a place in all of this too, which I think very much reflects the value of both of these cultures. I love that. So yeah, there is now, oh, and there's only one child. So they have to be tended by both temples i think it's also like a bridge between the sea god's temple and the verdant god's temple they have to work together now because there's no way to decide who the child belongs to it belongs to this new god this is the now the scion of this new god it doesn't belong to either of the old gods oh you know that kind of makes me i do want to amend when i said I'm going to use a little bit of my old boon and mix it with the jewels that I described or the jeweled eggs that I described our body producing. I think from those things, because we're introducing new forms of life and we've established that these godhoods emerge out of life, I think those also grow new gods too. So when that new type of life emerges, it is a tiny little godling. Because I like that. I just like, yeah, like they've got this child that they have to care for. And then there's also this massive roaming God that is just sowing the earth with with like new types of gods to exist in this, you know, beautiful and verdant world that is emerging. I just think it's very cute. It's really good. It's really good. Wonderful. So uh, awesome. Let's go to part three. Yeah, so this is part three, ending the game. It says, if you returned to the land as a god, which I believe we have most definitely done, (laughs) we describe the processional that sprang from the land as you returned to the temple. So, gosh, I, I guess we have to think a little bit of what this looked like for the people of both cultures kind of on the outside of this whole thing. Yeah. Like there are, you know, whatever bird keepers were kind of trying to provide atmosphere for that. (laughs) There are people who I'm sure were controlling a bit of the flow of like tidal pools and whatnot. And there must just be people from everywhere temple officials and non-temple officials who were gathered around this kind of bower cove and nervously waiting to see what would happen. And then the earth starts shaking and off the coast, volcanoes emerge. 
And for yeah. a second, it must be very terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a distinct fear at first that it did not go well. And they only know that it did at first by the fact that suddenly everything is growing and alive where maybe before it had been a struggle. I think like if there are food crops, they're suddenly just bursting with, you know, fruit and vegetables and and tubers actually just like erupting out of the ground. It's almost like too much. It's like verging on too much fertility. And then I think Mm -hmm. it's impossible not to see this God. Like I imagine this God to be like, they are the size of a blue whale, but they're walking the land. Oh yeah. And like part of their Godhood is that, they don't seem to notice anything that happens. Like they don't respond to things happening on the land, but their love and their fondness and nurturance of the land is the fact that they do not crush it. Whatever they are made of, whatever physical properties they have, part of their godhood is that their their footfall is just the creation of life. And so it's like a whale traveling through the sea. Maybe there are migration patterns that it adheres to. Maybe there's like stuff going on, but no one, no person can know what that is. Like, like this new God answers its own rhythms and its own tides. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. As we walk through the oceans, I think we create new tidal pathways. I can't remember if that's what it's just called. Like the currents, currents, we create new currents. Like we're just walking through the water and the pathways of the new currents and then emerging onto these new islands. And I've kind of figured it out. I do think it is literally every nine months a, a jewel germinates within our body and we plant it as a new God because like kind of the, the God itself is the act of love that we had together. Like it is a weird metaphorical and also physical like sort of fertile sexual intimacy so like every nine months the child that we produce is a new god for this world and i imagine we go around traveling to all of these islands and just planting new gods for a long time i don't know how long it is that we travel the earth for a while this god is just a going concern out there wandering around the world, like sowing its children everywhere. But eventually I think that work is done and it returns to the temple. And the second part of our question is what processional sprang from the land as you return to the temple? I just kind of want to know however long this process took of reseeding the world and remaking this new verdant place However long that took, that eventually ended and we came back, whatever humanity is around now kind of understands us making our way back to like live in the temple means that that part of our work is done. Uh, And I just, I want to know how did the two cultures that kind of had to come together and raise this child together How did they choose to celebrate that and welcome this God to its temple? Yeah, I wonder if the migration, because I now see this as a migration, right? Like as it is, it's almost like uh, like a salmon's life life cycle. The the this God that Valerian and other created in their union is now just populating the the land with 
new life. No one knows if it's going to work out, right? Like there's that second question in this, if you became a God thing that, that implies like there are, there is abundance and life, but it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean it's stable. So I wonder if now the temples have to like adjust their expectations of what they need is because for so long, they've just been like, we need life. We need to nurture life. We need to renew life. And now they are. And to a great degree, and now it's like, oh, now how do we sustain it? And that's a totally different question. And how do you honor nurturance? I, I think part of the metaphor that I think emerges and like how we'll answer that question is very dependent on how they choose to welcome this God back to the temple where it you know sits its rest. Because the question that is sort of hung in the air after we had that human child is can these two very different cultures reconcile their differences and come to meet this new world? Because yeah, I think between us and, and what we've done with our characters and the God they became, we sort of laid out very clearly what the values of this God are what it needed to take from both of those cultures and have them take forward and what it needed them to shed as they move into this new world. But it's a question of whether or not they can actually form the proper structure to exist in this world and worship this God. Yeah. And I guess that's a question for both of us to answer. Like, did those two cultures reconcile? Because that's a yes or like, it could be mixed. It could be a no. I don't know. I don't know. So here's here's the thing that I feel. I think the conflicts that surrounded this whole situation, it was a very, very long process. I think partially because of the way people from each culture would communicate. Like everybody from others' culture must have been very soft-spoken and very averse to conflict. And I kind of think there is this almost like bright and jovial way of engaging with other people that, that would come from Valerian's culture where, you know, people might like shout or whatever. So that just took them a long time to reconcile. But like after the God emerged from the cave and they found this baby in there, all of a sudden they're struck with the fact that it worked and they are in a place that is completely unlike either culture. It's a cave, but it's exposed to the outside and there is light. There's life everywhere, but this is very calm and protected and there are warm pools and whatnot. I think they have a chance to get this right. It's really a question of what importance do they place on this child's shoulders and what does a child who is being raised by both of these traditions become and whoever yeah. that child is to welcome back their their parent the god like I think that determines it do we do we want to like roll for that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like what if, okay. So we're just making up mechanics now, but you get to do that in games listeners. You get to do whatever you want because mm -hmm. it's a game. What if we say like we roll these two D sixes and again, it's like um, if you get a six or higher then then like it's a pretty harmonious process. But if, if we get lower and maybe we can represent the, the temples that our characters came from. So like if I roll and I get like a seven, 
then the verdant god's temple will be like in cooperation and what does non-cooperation look like maybe it's like oh maybe it's like oh in this child and this new god our old gods are irrelevant like we actually need to to like do something different and new and maybe non-cooperation is like no no like a stubbornness like we are going to stay exactly the way we are we're not going to evolve and we're not going to adapt yeah, I mean, from my understanding of the mechanics of this whole process is we became those gods. Those gods had sex and became a yeah, new god. Yeah. So those gods technically don't exist anymore. They, they're both dead, but that doesn't mean that their worshipers understand that. Yeah. So yeah. I love that. Let's Let's roll and see how people cooperate. Okay, well, I got exactly a six, so that's... Yes, it happened. Well, I got snake oh, eyes. No! <laughs> oh, the sea gods people. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, why don't you you start? What does the rigidity look like? I can tell you straight <laughs> up the way this god used to operate is it provided them with food and whatnot. They basically drifted through these tidal pools and like had very few responsibilities as their god took care of them. It didn't, like, have an excess of resources. It gave them what they needed to survive, but it also gave them a pleasant atmosphere and exactly what they needed. In this new world, they gotta work. Yeah, yeah. That's very sad. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they, they have to transfer from a life where they were kind of, like, living an idly pleasant existence. And if they go back to that temple, like it doesn't bring in the food anymore because the God's not making sure that that happens. So they can't live the way that they used to live. So like, even if they had agreed like, Oh, you know, every other year we'll trade off raising this child. It becomes very clear. Oh, we can't raise this child because the way the world used to work for us is completely fundamentally broken. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of heartbreaking. I loved these bioluminescent cave dwelling people with their chill zone spas. <laughs> I did too. But like, I mean, part, you know, I did get snake mm-hmm, eyes, mm-hmm. but I will say that the thing that we established for our God is that it, you know, nurtures things and grows to love those things in nurturing them. And this probably won't benefit all the people coming out of that society, but I think that general atmosphere and spirit will benefit enough of them that the beautiful things about that existence, about that culture, can live on in a transformed way. I just think, like, Fundamentally, that culture was based around a thing that can't exist anymore. And it's that's a hard transition to sort of make. It was it was propagated by a god. So it, it's like natural, but also unnatural. Yeah. So yeah. feel bad, but the world changes. It does. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, in even in a balanced ecosystem, sometimes some species die off or become become much, much smaller in number. But I, I like uh, I like the idea that in taking care of this child, they're like, oh, OK, we had our own kind of rigidity. Right. Like this is a different world now. Maybe. Oh, maybe it's just that the scope of tending is too big. Like they can't 
take care of everything green now because it's not limited anymore. This episode of One Shot features music by Scott Buckley, provided under a Creative Commons International 4.0 license. The track used is Where Stars Fall. This episode of One Shot was edited and sound designed by Tracy Barnett. You can find more of their work online, anywhere, at The Other Tracy. Well, heroes, that's it for One Shot this week, but don't worry. We'll be back next week with Scotch and Soda, a selection from Gian Shim's upcoming connected path game, The Shape of Shadows. In the meantime, you should check out some of the other amazing gaming shows here on the One Shot Network. Like System Mastery. System Mastery is a delightful stroll through the history of role-playing games. Except the games are terrible and the hosts are real jerks about everything. Join hosts Jeff and John as they explore the weirdest games ever made to talk about what worked, what went wrong, and which Silverhawk was the best. It was Hot Wing. You can find their shows at systemmasterypodcast.com or through a link on the OneShot website. Finally. As always, we end one shot with a call to action. And folks, I feel like my timeline is constantly inundating me with new injustices. It's easy to feel overwhelmed and powerless by all of the things that you see that you'd like to change but don't know how. One of the most important things is to make space to make yourself as involved as you can possibly be. A great first step to this is calling your representatives about issues that you care about. Calling is a direct way to let politicians know what their constituents want to see happen. It affects the way they vote, and it affects the way they discuss issues. Everything that you can do to influence them is important. Now, when I call my representatives, I use a site called fivecalls.org. That's the number five, calls.org. There, you can find a list of issue summaries that affect you locally and nationally, along with contact information for your representatives and scripts to read while you're on the phone to help you get your feelings across about the issue without having to worry about what you're going to say. Calling is quick and it can have a huge impact. If you haven't tried calling a representative before, now is the best time to start. Thanks, heroes.